Welcome to Dystopian Academy, a podcast about the Dystopian Wars game by War Cradle. My name is David Boren. You can contact me on Facebook in the Sturginium Lounge Facebook group, which is the central place to discuss the game online. So let's discuss a little bit about the factions. In the original Dystopian Wars, it was made up of nations. Some of the nations were major nations, had a lot of ships. Some of them were minor nations with comparatively fewer ships. There is a system of alliances. In the new game, there are just eight factions, most of which are composed of multiple nations allied together. So it's a simpler issue, and you don't have to worry about any of these factions you know, being shortchanged with fewer ships than others. Let's go through each of the eight and talk about what they are comprised of. So first we have Covenant of the Enlightened, which is not actually a nation, but it's made up of scientists from many nations all over the world, and led by Barnabas Drainus Sturgeon, who discovered Element 270, a.k.a. Sturgeonium, at an alien spaceship wreck site in Antarctica. At this point in the history of the game, they have strongholds and laboratories all around the world, but they are still primarily based with their headquarters in Antarctica. Next, we have the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth is made up of Russia, Poland, Lithuania, and Mongolia, which are in roughly equal partnership. The Commonwealth also includes what used to be the Black Wolf Mercenary Group in the old edition. You can kind of think of the Commonwealth as having most of Eastern Europe and that general part of the world under their control. In contrast, the Imperium, which is led by Prussia, they're kind of the Western Europe faction. So the Imperium has Prussia, Scandinavia, Bavaria, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which spans a pretty considerable amount of space at this time in history. The crown is modeled, of course, on the old British Empire and includes Britain, Canada, Australia, India, and South Africa. The Union is pretty much just the USA, maybe some island territories, something like that. In this world, the North won the Civil War rather than the Confederates, like in the old version of the game. This change was required to match up the background of dystopian wars with the background of Wild West Exodus, as these two games now share a single universe. If you're looking for a faction that has a unified look, either the Union or Covenant of the Enlightened are probably good picks for you because these don't have uh, different nations with different style ships. The Empire is kind of the Pan-Asian faction and consists of China, Japan, Korea, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, and the Philippines. Like the Commonwealth, they are in a relatively equal partnership They are governed by the Jade Council, which consists of one representative from each of the member nations. Next, we have the Latin Alliance. It consists of France, which seems to be the dominant nation, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and some kind of scattered parts of South America. Finally, we have the Sultanate. This consists of Turkey, Egypt, Greece, Persia, basically the Ottoman Empire, Their background document doesn't have as precise a list of the individual countries, but that should pretty much cover it. Since last time we talked about building the Commonwealth and Enlightened boxes, let's talk about the Prussians. This is an extremely easy thing to do because you don't have to make any decisions at all. The Prussian ships are completely modular, so all you have to do is build your basic hulls, and then you're going to swap out topper pieces to make them any class that you want for each individual game. This makes the Prussians very friendly to collect, 
and it's nice to not have to worry about regretting what kind of ship you built. Next, I'd like to talk a little bit about carriers. Specifically, let's start with fleet carriers. Now, I'm not sure how many people have been experimenting with these yet, but we do have stats for fleet carriers for the, the Russians, the Enlightened, Crown, and Union. It's kind of hard to compare directly against the Enlightened carrier since it's so different from the others. So let's kind of focus our discussion on the airplane-style carriers. So what are some of the advantages of a carrier? First, they don't need line of sight. So you can hide a carrier behind an island or behind your battleship or something like that. Or you can also go after enemy ships that are trying to hide. This is pretty nice. Also, if your carrier is out of line of sight, that protects it from damage, of course. Second, SRS tokens stack with no loss of efficiency. So when you have supporting weapons being linked together, typically they're only going to put in roughly half as much dice as they would if they were the lead weapon. Of course, it varies depending on the weapon. But SRS tokens just add together. So when you can put a lot of them on something, you can get a really big attack. And I generally do recommend piling up a lot of tokens in one place. There's also the potential for extremely long range. If you put the SRS tokens on your card, you can do a long-range sortie on the following turn, which will allow them to appear anywhere on the table for unlimited range. Now, the downside of that is it pretty much takes two turns to do a long-range sortie, but you'll probably launch one of these on turn one because enemy ships won't be in range yet, and it may be useful later in the game if you don't have a target that you can hit. There are two disadvantages primarily to using carriers or, or SRS tokens. The first is that if you're not doing a long-range sortie, they have a pretty short range. It's only 20 inches, and that's measured before your ship moves. So you can't move up potentially 8 or 9 inches and use that to extend your threat range. The Enlightened Whale Carrier is even worse. It only has 15 inches before the move, so it really needs to get up close. One of the problems with this short range is it can often require you to put your carrier in a dangerous position in order to launch your planes at a target. The other disadvantage of carriers is that unlike most weapons, your opponents can use defense against them. If you're sending airplanes to attack somebody, they can use their aerial defense, or if you're sending the whales, they can use their submerged defense. I would say that this is probably a little bit overestimated as a disadvantage. If you look at the dice, there's only three block symbols. So whereas an attack die you can think of as an equivalent to one hit on average, a defensive die is only equal to about a half a hit. So if you look at an enemy ship and it has, for example, five aerial defense, that's only blocking two and a half hits on average. As long as you're linking together your shots you know, and piling them up as you normally would, it's generally going to be enough to overcome the defense and not be a huge deal over it. I've heard people talking online about how shield generators or ablative armor are not that significant because it's only taking off you know, one or two dice out of a big linked attack. Well, aerial defense is pretty much similar to that. It's only taking out a couple dice out of a big linked attack. Now, you can also use your SRS tokens to defend friendly ships. This can protect them against incoming rockets or incoming SRS. And there's a special trick that you can do. 
You place your tokens on a friendly ship to protect it. That friendly ship, assuming it hasn't activated yet, it still has the potential to move. And if you can get it within five inches of an enemy ship, at the end of the turn where you're going to resolve your SRS tokens, those planes can hop over from the friendly to the enemy ship and attack it. And that way you're potentially getting double use out of them, but you're also able to use this as a range extender. So the 20 inches before you move that was so limiting, now you can go 20 inches to a friendly ship. Then you can move that friendly ship and there's also the potential that enemy ships may approach your friendly ship. Hopefully they won't do that if there's a big swarm of angry planes on it, but even if they avoid that, that may be a board control tool for you. I highly suggest that you make yourself familiar with page 26 of the rulebook, where it covers new targets and scramble, which is what we were just talking about. The new targets section states that if the target that your tokens were originally assigned to has been destroyed they can hop to another enemy model within five inches. The scramble section is that they can hop from a friendly model to an enemy model within five inches. Now, the one thing that you have to worry about, though, if you're trying to do this trick, is that if a friendly ship is destroyed, any SRS tokens that were on that ship get destroyed as well. So do not put the tokens on a fragile or badly damaged ship, and you may want to spread them around. So... Say you've got a frigate squad. That gives you the best range extension because they're fast. If there's a bunch of them, you may have five ships, six ships, who knows. You can split your SRS so there's only one or two tokens on each individual ship, and now it's difficult for your opponent to try to remove those efficiently. So now let's talk about the differences between the fleet carriers and the support carriers. A fleet carrier is a flagship. So this can take up one of your flagship slots if you need to get a second battle fleet into your list, or if you want to run this instead of a battleship in a single battle fleet list. The support carriers are essentially the cruiser-sized carriers, and they're typically going to be in a unit of one to three. I would not recommend taking a single because that's not going to give you sufficient tokens to have good damage potential. You're going to want to have two or three if you can afford it. It will be more expensive than getting a single fleet carrier, but you're going to get more total hull, and it's going to be more difficult for your opponent to reduce your SRS. Just like regular weapons get reduced in efficiency when your ship is crippled, it's the same thing here. The number of SRS tokens you launch is typically cut in half. We've seen one example, the whale carrier, where there's an odd number and it rounds up, so that carrier fares a little bit better than the others. In the games that I've been running the Commonwealth carriers, I feel like I've gotten better results out of running a unit of the support carriers rather than the single fleet carrier. Although that may be because I kind of find the Russian fleet carrier to be a little less attractive than the others. It's got a lower SRS load. It's significantly more fragile than the beta stats we have for Union and Crown, although admittedly those can change. And it's also fairly weakly armed. There's a peculiarity where the Orbat has three rocket launcher batteries, but the card has four. So I don't know which one they intend it to be, and we can kind of keep an eye on that. If it goes up to having four, that's obviously going to make it a little bit better. In any miniatures game, there's a lot of discussions going on about which models are the best, which models are junk that you should never run, all that kind of thing. I find that to be a lot less of an issue in most naval games. Usually, almost all ships are viable, 
but what you do see is that some ships are definitely better at certain jobs than others. And how you use them and how you equip them and matching the ships to the jobs they're good at is essential to doing well in the game. So let's take an example. Let's say I have a Kutsov and I've decided to put two heavy rocket batteries on it. So one forward, one aft. If I take this ship and run it straight up the center of the table, it will perform very poorly. First of all, it's got a long-range weapon. Why would I want to be getting up close? Second, with fore and aft turrets, if I'm pointed at you, I can only fire my front turret. What this ship wants to do is stay in the back and be sailing sideways across the rear of the table so that it can be taking band three shots you know, out to 30 inches and hitting ships with that. And no matter what ship you have or how you've equipped it, similarly, there's going to be roles that it's good at, roles that it's bad at. If I take that same Kutsov, but I give it heavy gun batteries instead, now it's a ship that wants to be in medium range. So probably a good role for it would be to head up one of the flanks. I could sail a unit of these ships up the edge of the table, and they can be firing inward towards the center. They've got some capability to adjust their aim a little bit, turning, although they still have a 90-degree arc, so it's not too much of a problem. And if I need them to, they can get halfway up the table, and then they can turn in and start sailing across at that point and firing at enemy ships that are still far away or ships that are in the back. Maybe they're going to be doing front and rear separate shots at that point. Whatever. This is a natural fit for this ship. Now, if I do the Norilsk, it has a front gun battery. So I'm going to typically want to only have gun battery type weaponry on that ship because that gives me more flexibility in linking. It doesn't make sense to choose this ship and put heavy rockets or tri-rails on it. If I want those weapons, I should pick another hull. For this ship... Because I've got that gun battery in the front, I want to have other gun batteries that can go together. And this ties in with another idea I wanted to talk about, is staying relevant. As ships become crippled or get sunk so that the unit decreases in size, your offensive output decreases. And if you have too few ships or poor linking with a bunch of different weapons that don't match, that's going to make it harder for those ships to stay relevant. If you've got the same kind of weapons and your weapons are individually weak, you can still put them together and fire off a big enough shot to damage a target. But if you've got a, a crippled ship that's alone or it can't link its weapons because they're all different kinds, this is kind of an issue with some of the enlightened ships. They like to have a lot of different guns, but they're all mixed types. So when you're choosing your turrets, take a look at those keywords and try, if you can, to get weapons that match. That's going to give you more flexibility and more longevity of when that ship can remain relevant. Now, let's say that I have a ship that I have in my list mainly for contesting objectives. It doesn't necessarily have to have really strong weapons. It may be more important that it's a fast ship or its durability may be the most important thing. So a fast cruiser is typically good for scoring objectives that score early in the game. You need to get up there and get in a zone or it's something where you have to get in your opponent's deployment zone, which is a long way away, and you may need to sneak past them on a flank or something like that to get there and, and try to stay out of their arcs. But if you've got something you want to score late in the game, a durable monitor-type ship might be the ticket. You're getting more hull per point spent, 
and even if the weapons aren't strong, it takes more effort to try and remove this ship compared to its cost. You can buy more of the low-cost ships that have more hull points, and they can sit in a zone and do some fighting, but they're more a ship about endurance than about offense. Also, of course, look at your weapon arcs. If you've got front and rear turrets, the ship wants to be facing its side towards the enemy. If you've got two front turrets, you know, say for a blitzer-type cruiser, you want to be pointing towards the enemy. Same thing with your battleships. If you've got the triple front turrets, try to keep your ships going in the direction where they can bring all their weapons to bear. Otherwise, you're limiting their output. That's not always bad, but if some of your guns aren't going to have a shot, you at least want to have a good reason. I'm giving up the shot because I don't want to run into this island over here. I'm giving up this shot because I'm trying to get to this scoring zone. Or I'm giving up this shot because I need to use this ship to block line of sight to this other ship that's more important. Typically, you're going to do the best if you can think of your fleet as a whole, not running just individual units. You want them to support each other. You want them to work together to accomplish the things you want to do. And sometimes that means that you have to prioritize different ships or units, decide what's most important, who's going to be doing what, who is it vital to keep alive because they're the only ships left that can accomplish a particular goal. A good example of that might be later in the game your opponent still has something big like a battleship up there, you have to preserve your unit that still has enough offensive output that it can hurt it effectively. If you've got one cruiser left in this unit and you've got a couple of frigates left in the other unit, those may be expendable towards the goal of keeping your strong offense unit alive because those ships on their own might not be able to damage that battleship anymore. And if you can't take that thing down, it's going to make you lose the game. So that's basically it, just to kind of bring up the idea of thinking about ships not being good or bad, but ships being useful for different roles and what they can do and what they can't do, having realistic expectations and trying to put them in a place where they're going to succeed because they have the right equipment and stats for the job. Next up, I wanted to kind of do a faction playstyle review. This is something that I kind of wanted to do in the first episode, but I thought we didn't have enough information yet. And there was too much risk of misidentifying the play styles or just not having enough to compare against. Now that we have more data, I'd like to talk about the different fleets and how they play. Note that I'll be referring to specific nations rather than factions, because it's kind of expected that maybe Scandinavian ships don't have the same play style as Prussian ships, even though they're part of the same faction. First up, let's talk about the Russians. Russian fleets are built on cheap, durable ships. Their speed is a little bit above average, and they tend to have an extra point of hull compared to similar ships and other factions. Plus, they all carry the ablative armor ability, which reduces incoming attacks by one die. It's essentially a half-strength shield, but it can't be taken down by a generator offline critical. It's not necessarily a lot of protection, but it is built into every ship, even down to the frigate size. However, Russian ships also have low defense against aerial and submerged attacks, and generally less impressive special abilities on most of them. Their non-flagship classes also have fairly low turn limits, particularly the cruisers. All their ships also carry the hammer sweep ability that gives them extra ramming power and a speed bonus when they don't turn. I have not found this to come into play very often for ramming so far, but at least it does give you an extra inch of movement if you don't have to turn. 
And it's definitely going to be more valuable when the Katanga comes out with its heavy prow ram, or any other future classes that get ram bonuses. The Borodino Battlefleet bonus gives an additional plus one die ramming bonus to Hammer Sweep. So if you do end up running Katangas in your list, you're probably going to want to put them in the Borodino Battlefleet. The Moseski Battlefleet, which is their fleet carrier, gives a homing bonus to your Akronoplan torpedoes, but since we don't have stats yet for the Akronoplan, it's hard to tell how good this might be. Maybe we can follow up on that in the next episode. We will definitely test those out and talk about it more when they are released. Their default heavy gun batteries are best in the 10 to 20 inch range, which is true of most factions in Dystopian Wars. Those seem to be a pretty standard armament. They also have access to rockets and tri-rail guns, which are currently unique to Russia. What sets them apart is they have the piercing special rule, which says that when you do a point of damage to a ship, you also do a critical. So this means that you get a critical effect plus a disorder token on them. And eight dice is enough to do a critical to pretty much anything with decent reliability. Now, the Russians are not the only ships that have piercing in the game. The Enlightened has a piercing gun on their Antarctica and Copernicus-class cruisers. The big difference, though, is that those are expensive ships, and they just have one piercing weapon. Whereas you can put railguns on all your Russian cruisers and your battleships, so you can really spam these if you wanted to. I think the intended disadvantage of the railguns is their poor linking, but it hasn't totally worked out that way. A key thing to understand is that as target ships get bigger, their number of hull points kind of scales to the, the size and the number of points of the ship. But critical effects and disorder do not. Even with the biggest and most powerful ships, you can reduce their effectiveness quite a lot with a few railgun hits. And then all of a sudden, they can't link. They automatically get a navigation lock when they have three disorder. And it can really deliver a hurt out of proportion to what you would expect. They're also quite good at one-shotting frigates. With most of the Mass 1 ships, like frigates and destroyers, having an armor rating of 4, that means you only need to score 4 hits, and that ship is destroyed. Now, War Cradle is aware of this, and we've been seeing hints on the forums for some time that they're going to do an update to the railgun rules. So what do we do in the meantime? That's pretty much to each player to decide for themselves. My only suggestion is that if you're playing against new players, I wouldn't use more than a minimal number of railguns. It's already hard enough to try and build a game community right now during COVID, so I kind of feel like it's not worth the risk of a potential new recruit having a negative play experience. I'm really hoping we get an official update soon, and then everyone can go back to blasting railgun holes in ships without any guilt. They are also the only faction that has access to the cryo generator. This is pretty much a freeze ray that creates small icebergs during the game. You can use these to interfere with enemy maneuvering or help block line of sight. Note that submerged models cannot go under these icebergs. This has been verified with War Cradle. Unlike the older Spartan games, you cannot place the iceberg directly in front of an enemy ship. There has to be 5 inches of separation, so you can't use it to immediately cause a collision. Because of their lower costs, Russian fleets will typically outnumber most other factions. Next, let's talk about the Covenant of the Enlightened. This faction tends to be elite and very customizable. The Enlightened have dedicated generator slots on most of their Mass 2 and higher ships, so you don't need to lose a turret to add a generator. They also have six different cruiser size classes, 
compared to the four that most factions have, and two frigate classes instead of one. This gives you a lot of room to customize your fleet. Enlightened ships are typically quite durable, with many of their ships having a built-in shield generator, or you can swap to a shroud generator for free, which is better against big attacks of 12 dice or more. Make sure to let your opponent know if you've changed any internal generators, since these are not represented on the model. Enlightened ships tend to carry multiple smaller weapons rather than one to two big ones. But be aware that these weapons often have different keywords, so they may not be linkable. Their weapons also have powerful special effects, such as sustained on most of their guns, and even piercing on the heavy particle cannons. Wavelurker allows their ships to submerge to get the obscured trait, but also causes a reduction in your own firepower. Note that you have to declare Wavelurker at the start of the unit's activation before you move or fire. And since the set doesn't come with any explicit tokens for it, I would suggest making some sort of submerge token that you can place on your ships. Since the Enlightened usually needs to get up close within 10 inches for best damage, this is usually an acceptable trade-off. And even their whales have a shorter range than most SRS at 15 inches instead of 20. The Enlightened Science Special Rule allows them to ignore the generator offline effect by taking a disorder token instead, as long as they're not crippled, which makes them the only faction that can fly safely over terrain with a repulsion generator and not worry about falling to their instant death. The Visitor Ambush lets you start with some free whale tokens, and you can purchase more for 20 points each in order to set up a sneak attack against any enemy ship on the table during the first round. Their bigger ships have above-average defense, but not the unmanned frigates, and boarding is weak across the board. Their unique generators are the Null Generator, which disables enemy generators, and the Clone Generator, which can copy the effects of other generators that can be either friendly or enemy. The Enlightened are also known for their excellent frigates that can put out big damage. The Descartes Battle Fleet gives you extra Visitor Ambush Whale Tokens, while the Hypatia Battle Fleet lets that ship take any generators for free, and this also applies to the Prometheus if you've been looking to take the prototype version to save a few points. Overall, I tend to think of the Enlightened as kind of a shotgun faction. They're not going to do very well when they're still far away, so they need to find ways to close the distance and get up to the range where they're going to be doing more damage than their opponents. That brings us to the Prussians. Overall, the Prussians seem to be kind of a glass cannon faction. Prussian ships don't have extra hull, shields, ablo armor, and feature slightly lower citadel ratings than the other fleets we've seen so far. But what they do have is excellent offensive weapons, and many Prussian ships are destined to live short, glorious lives of blowing stuff up. These weapons come in diverse forms, including the high-damage, long-range Gustav heavy bombards, short-range flat cannons with sustained, versatile arc guns with the Voltaic trait, and the awesome point-blank Sturmbringer. They have a focus on logistics abilities that grant them card advantage, and their Voltaic weapons are particularly strong against anyone using shield generators, such as the Enlightened. Prussian ships are also unusually good at boarding assaults due to their solid fray ratings and the Lightning Assault special rule. They also have exclusive access to the excellent Storm Generator, which combines a powerful short-range Voltaic attack with the protection of granting Obscured when fired, the key point to remember about the Storm Generator is that it only has a 15-inch range, so you can't obscure yourself until you get up fairly close. Voltaic is a powerful ability on the Imperium's arc weapons that brings several major benefits. 
First, if the target suffers a critical hit, they will get an extra disorder token. Second, if the target has a shield generator, they automatically receive a generator offline. And finally, combined with the inductorium trait, they can donate excess exploding hit dice to the next voltaic attack from the same unit. This can be a big efficiency booster if you're able to fire individual shots. The way it works is that you can look at your exploding dice and try to decide if they're likely to get your current shot up to the next damage threshold. If you think they will, you can keep them and roll them normally. But if you feel you're unlikely to get enough additional hits, you can add those dice onto your next shot instead. Prussian ships equipped with the Gustav Heavy Bombard also have the option to upgrade to Phosphor Shells, which gives them the hazard quality. With several ways to hand out additional disorder tokens, this means that you can cause a lot of suppression to an enemy force, preventing them from being able to link shots and interfering with their navigation, since a third point of disorder gives a navigation lock. Prussia also has an unusually large number of named flagships, giving you some extra choices in weapon loadouts. We're still waiting at this time to see some of the Prussian battle fleet bonuses. Hopefully those will come out soon in the next Orbat. I would also say that Prussian flagships have a tendency to be diverse in their armaments. Rather than having everything focused on a single range band, single direction, they carry a variety of weaponry so that they can function well in different situations. And part of being a good Prussian player is going to be to try to look ahead and predict good positions for your ship to make use of more of these weapons in a turn. I would also say that another key trait for a Prussian player is good judgment on how to use your Voltaic attacks. Sometimes it's going to be better to link them into bigger shots to try to score a critical and give extra disorder tokens. Other times it may be better to try and take single shots to make the most out of the inductorium. This is probably going to take some experience, but if you can master these decisions, it's going to pay off in the long run. I feel we don't really have enough information to have firm conclusions yet on Union and Crown, but I can give you some initial impressions. Union seems to have good durability on their flagships with shields and high citadel ratings. They have excellent maneuverability using their paddle wheels, and I really like the give them hell ability that allows them to put out extra damage anytime your disorder is low enough to be able to afford it. Certainly, I would use this on turn one if you can. If you like rockets, they can buy the Akron Observer upgrade, giving you extended aerial range plus an extra point of defense to the unit. They seem to have pretty good speed as well. Looking at the Crown, they also have excellent Citadel ratings, above average torpedoes, and stout-hearted crews are another of their strengths. Crown engineers are unusually good at fixing critical effects, and their crews ignore disorder, so their ships tend to hold their effectiveness a bit longer than most nations in terms of being able to link. Their ships carry the Guardian Generator, which gives you a mini-shield if you're within 5 inches of a friendly shield generator. However, even though the Guardian Generators are free, the shield generators seem to have a little higher than normal cost to reflect this, so you want to think carefully where to put your shields and how many of them to purchase. I would recommend initially trying the shields on a flagship and let the less durable cruisers benefit from sticking near it. They also have the option of the Trident Generator, which is a 15-inch, 10-die attack with magnetic that makes your torpedoes more effective against that target. I think over time we'll see Crown having more torpedo emphasis, with probably a set of torpedo subs and maybe torpedo-specialized ships coming out in the future. By the way, I also had a pre-measuring technique that I wanted to share with you. Typically, when you are activating one of your units of ships, 
you'll have an intended target that you want to shoot at and an intended range band that you're trying to get into. My recommendation is that since you can pre-measure in this game, pre-measure the boundary of the range band you want to be in and then place a small marker on the table showing you where that is. That way, when you're maneuvering your ships, you know exactly where the line is, and this also streamlines play because you don't have to go back and keep re-measuring if you're not sure whether a ship is in or out. Instead, put down a point or a, a small line or something like that, and you'll know exactly where your ships have to go to either stay in the further band or get into the closer band. So I recently ran a test game my intention was to try out some models that I don't think have been used yet, or at least people haven't reported on using them. This was Commonwealth versus the Imperium. On the Imperium side, two battle fleets. First has a Kaiser heavy battleship, two Augustus bombardment cruisers, and three Blitzer cruisers. Second battle group is a Heidelberg logistics battle cruiser, six Arminius frigates, and a second six Arminius frigates. This came out to a total of 1301 points. For the Commonwealth, I was trying out the Murmansk Mobile Stronghold with a shroud generator, two Norilsk heavy cruisers with heavy gun batteries, three Kutsov cruisers with heavy rocket batteries, second battle fleet is a Borodino battleship with heavy gun batteries, seven Rurik frigates, and six Rurik frigates. This comes in at 1305. While my main goal was to test the Murmansk and some of the Prussian ships, you can also draw some useful conclusions about reserves in general. Because the Russians were missing 330 of their points, they were having a bit of trouble. The Murmansk did not come in on the first roll, which is a 1 in 6 chance, and did not come in on the turn 2 roll, which is a 50-50 chance. If the Murmansk had not come in on turn 3, I think that pretty much would have ended the game. Fortunately, however, it did. Now, the Murmansk differs from typical reserve ships because it teleports into the battle and you can put it anywhere on the board. You're not restricted to coming in off an edge or anything like that. This allows you to try to find the perfect position so that it can drop in and open fire with all of its weapons at full efficiency. The Murmansk did put out a lot of firepower when it came in. It can be a little bit difficult to try and get every shot in the perfect range. Fortunately, you've got heavy broadsides that are very useful against the closer targets. The other thing I noted about the Murmansk is it is a little bit fragile. It doesn't quite have the armor and citadel ratings of a battleship. It's only a 610 as opposed to a 712. And it also has the lumbering rule. All models shooting at uh, the Murmansk can reroll their blanks. So even though I had the shroud generator on it for some additional protection, it loses its health fast. So be aware of that. It's going to come in, make a big splash, and maybe not stick around too much. A lot will depend on when it comes in during the game. If it comes in earlier and your opponent still has you know, a lot more ships on the table, then I would expect it to not last too long. On the other hand, if it comes in later in the game and there's comparatively fewer ships still around shooting at it, it's going to have better survivability. Something else you can probably do if you're holding a lot of points in reserve is maybe be a little bit less aggressive until that resource shows up. If you kind of hang back a little bit, you can probably stall for a bit of time and give that unit more chance to arrive on the battlefield and make its impact. Anyway, I will say that despite the lower Citadel rating making you more susceptible to taking criticals, the advanced repair facilities worked really well trying to keep the ship clean of criticals and tokens.
The Murmansk also has the logistical support ability, which gives you one extra card in your hand. This to me seemed of marginal value because you don't benefit from it until the Murmansk actually gets on the table. And then when it does get on the table, it might not stay there all that long. So maybe figure on having it for two turns, something like that. Uh, it's definitely not as good as having it on one of the Imperium ships that gives you that benefit for the entire game. On the Imperium side, all the ships seemed capable of putting out pretty strong damage. One thing I would advise if you want to run the Augustus Bombardment Cruisers, you really want to keep these back as far as possible on your deployment. They should probably be touching the rear edge of the table. Since their shots can go out to 40, you want to make full use of that and ensure that your opponent's 30-inch weapons, such as the heavy rocket batteries I had in our game, are not able to reach them on the first turn. Make use of full reverse when you can. Something you might do is first turn, just drift up your two inches, second turn, full reverse. I would also advise having a unit that can control the space in front of them, either threatening it or occupying it to help prevent people from getting up closer to the Augustus. For my main flagship, I went with the Kaiser because it seemed rather conventional compared to some of the other Imperium designs. If you've taken a look at the Orbat, you'll notice that a lot of them have rear arc-only weapons or a mix of very short weapons and very long weapons, and it may not be immediately evident how you're intended to use them. Initially, you may have the impression that it's a, a little bit of a schizophrenic design. I'm not sure that that's so much the case. I think it's more that it's a ship that can do well in any situation it finds itself. You're not intended to be able to use every weapon every turn. What you're intended to do is, no matter what is going on around the ship, you have something useful you can do. And a skilled player can try to put it into positions where it can use more of those weapons and try to predict ahead what spots it's going to need to be in on the table to make use of those. I found the storm generators on both ships to be very valuable, putting out an extra attack that does not degrade when you are crippled, that's an important point, and also giving the obscured property, which I find to be extremely valuable. If you're comparing shroud generator versus shield, I will pretty much always prefer the shroud. The shield generator takes off two dice, the shroud generator essentially takes off one-sixth of their dice, so the break-even point is 12. And when you're running a larger ship like a flagship, you should expect that most of the attacks coming in are going to be at 12 or higher, making the Shroud Generator a better option defensively. Now, it's entirely possible that in the future, we'll have ships or abilities that can ignore Obscured, say some sort of spotter planes or whatever, or ships equipped with sonar or radar. But for the moment, I'm finding the Shroud to be a better value. The logistical support was also nice, having an extra card. I felt this gave me a little bit better options for what I wanted to do, as well as better odds of trying to get the initiative on a crucial turn. The more cards you have, the better chance that at least one of them will be a very high value. So getting back to the conclusion of the battle, both sides were heavily damaged, and Imperium had the upper hand until the Murmansk showed up. At that point, the scales tipped, the Murmansk was able to put out a great deal of firepower and soak up a great deal of firepower. Really, the only Russian ships left besides the Murmansk were a handful of frigates and two of the rocket-equipped cruisers. And frankly, those were starting to suffer from being too close to their opponents and no longer in their preferred range bands. 
However, with the firepower of the Murmansk and the other remnants of the Russian fleet, they were able to sink the last of the Imperium and win the game. We've also had some very nice art previews recently on the website. War Cradle has uploaded two new wallpaper images. One of them shows the Russian Mosaisky battle fleet. This is their fleet carrier and supporting ships. The picture shows two of the Katanga heavy cryo cruisers. This is a ship that has a cryo generator like the Borodino battleship, front and rear turret slots, and a powerful ramming attachment on the front of the ship. They're a little bit pricey in points, but uh, they look like they could do some serious damage. I have not gotten to try those out yet, but it's on my to-do list. The image also shows a couple of their Akronoplans. The Mosaisky Battle Fleet rules say that Akronoplanes get homing on their torpedoes as a Battle Fleet bonus. It looks like a nice set. I'm hoping there might be room for more than two Akronoplans, but since the picture only shows two, I'm assuming that's what's going to be in there. Then they've also shown us a wallpaper for the Imperium Tempelhof Battle Fleet. So this contains the Tempelhof Fleet Carrier, which can be built in two different variations. One has their normal SRS tokens, and then one has the Blitzen Bomber tokens. It also shows four destroyers. These are small models similar to the Arminius frigates, but with a second gun mounted on the top rear. And then two cruiser-sized ships. One of them is the Conrad Support Carrier. It seems to use the same modular hull as the rest of their cruisers. The cockpit is shifted to the front, and there's an angled launch pad that goes from the rear of the ship, and the front of it rests on top of the cockpit. The other is a ship that we don't know about yet. It features a front large electrical gun. Some people have speculated this may be a Sturmbringer, and it's also showing a flat cannon on top. So you should be able to build either of these classes, and going by the Imperium modular style, you can probably mix and match these parts with any of your existing cruisers from the box set. Stuart has also posted in the Sturginium Lounge Forum pictures of the Empire Frontline Squadron. No surprises there, just the standard cruiser and frigate sprues. And the Commonwealth Support Squadron. This is the Support Squadron box that matches up with their carrier box. So it contains more Acronoplanes and more of the cryo cruisers. Since War Cradle just released the Empire Orbat, let's take a look at what the Chinese and Japanese ships look like. The Empire has several interesting special abilities listed in their Orbat. The first is the weapon quality Alchemical. Alchemical occurs on the Erlangshin Bombard and also on both the heavy and regular Huaqiang. What this does is when you damage a model, if they don't have any disorder, they get a point of disorder. If they already have disorder, then it does an extra point of damage. You can look for enemy ships that already have disorder on them and use this you know, to do a little bit of extra free damage. They also have Contra Rotation. This is the same ability that's in the Union Orbat. Basically, they have paddle wheels, and as long as they don't have a navigation lock, that means that they can, as a special operation, activate Contra Rotation and rotate their ship with a drift of zero. and They, they can rotate up to 90 degrees either way. So it allows particularly long-range ships to station keep and not have to keep advancing closer to the enemy, and they don't get any disorder like if they had ordered a full reverse. This can also be used well to surprise your opponent which way you're going. You can approach an island or something like that, angled to one side, 
they think you're going that way. And then by use of contra-rotation, you go around the other side of the island, perhaps being able to pull off some kind of surprise attack. The Empire also has Shadow Hunter. This is not on all the ships. It tends to be on the, the lighter, sneakier kind of ships, something like that. What this is, is allows you to redeploy the ship. So you can put it in one location during the deployment at the beginning of the game. And then after all the deployment is done, but before Vanguard moves, you can use your Shadow Hunter ability to redeploy these ships. And you can do it on all of your Shadow Hunter units, which seems quite strong. So this can allow you to set up a refused flank or just get better matchups, however you want to use it. Finally, we have the Mark of Yama. So this is the ability that encourages Empire ships to use more rockets. Any of your attacks that have the aerial quality also gain the homing quality against enemy models that have one or more critical damage markers. So look for targets that have critical damage or defer these ships until later in the turn so that you can cause damage. And then once you have placed a critical damage marker, you can take advantage of it. Some Empire ships, pretty much the the Japanese ones, also have access to the Cheetah Submersible Automata. So this is basically a submarine escort that can go with your ship, giving a bonus to your submerged defense, and also giving you plus two action dice if you do a boarding assault. I think both the Ningjing and the Yangtze appear to be pretty solid ships. I especially like the Yangtze, and being a long-range bombard ship, it's pretty easy to give up the rear turret for a generator without feeling that you're impacting your firepower very much. The interphase generator, I think, is the preferred choice for more durability. These are very strong right now. I'm not sure I'm convinced that they won't see uh, some kind of reduction in power, but we'll see how it goes. I also like that the three bombards give a lot of flexibility that you can fire them either together or independently. If you can manage to do independent shots, then the alchemical trait can really pay off. With the Ningjing, I feel like I would prefer to take heavy gun batteries, intending to move up the table and threatening to use the heavy Huaqiang against enemy frigate or cruiser units that get too close. With 8 dice, it stands a pretty good chance of damaging almost anything, and if you can catch a lot of ships under your template, it's going to be very effective. The Congo is a slightly faster version of a battleship, with one extra hull, one extra citadel, a built-in shroud generator, and you trade your contra-rotation for Shadow Hunter, allowing you to redeploy the ship. It also has heavy torpedoes instead of the heavy Huaqiang. Compared to the Ningjing, you're paying an extra 30 points. To me, this means that you really wanted to have three guns. You'll use your Shadow Hunter to line up a good approach, fire the two forward guns plus your heavy torpedoes as you advance, and then at some point switch to broadside facing so you can bring your rear turret to bear and you have your shroud generator and extra hull as protection. You may be thinking about stacking the shroud and interphase generators. I'm not sure whether that's really going to be worthwhile unless the rules for interphase change. The reason for that is because shroud gives you obscured, but being mass one from interphase already gives you obscured from gunnery attacks, which are the majority of the attacks in the game. If you are facing opponents that use a lot of non-gunnery attacks, then it might be worthwhile, but that can be hard to predict ahead of time. It may be more common, though, once carriers are released. Next, let's take a look at the cruisers. I tend to look at these in terms of what my intended role is for the ship. For a rocket bombardment ship, I think I really like the Dow. 
it gives 13 dice, which is almost as much as the Jian for 10 points more. But it's also redeployable, so you can line up your shots and maybe move it away from things that could threaten it. Also, the facings are really important. A Dao can face forward, and this allows it to easily meet incoming enemy units with a Huaqiang shot. In contrast, a fore-aft ship wouldn't be able to do this. It's going to be pointing to the left or the right, so there's always going to be a blind side that enemy frigates could potentially advance on you. For a more standard kind of ship that's going to close with the enemy, a Jian with heavy gun batteries looks pretty good. You have pretty good fore-aft firepower, and once you get up close, you can threaten to use a Huaqiang, so your opponent's going to have to worry about that. It's not necessarily valid to compare between different factions too much, but by way of comparison, if you were looking for a rocket broadside ship, I think the Kutsav does it better for 5 points less and more durability. A good role, I think, for the Wusong is a ship that's going to close range aggressively, heading straight forward and actively hunting enemy frigates or other lightly armored ships while firing its turret at targets of opportunity. I would have to say that the Meru Heavy Cruiser is probably my least favorite of the different Chinese cruiser classes. For 115 points, it seems fairly expensive, and I'm not sure that you're really getting as much out of it. You have four aft gun batteries, so in order to turn sideways and use those, you're not able to use the rockets, and that's part of what you're paying for to get the heavy. It's a little more durable at four hull, but it just feels like too many points for what you're getting. Same thing with the one Japanese cruiser class, the Yamaguchi. Offensively, it's very similar to the 85-point Blitcher, and I don't think you're getting really a lot more for your 25 extra points. Mainly just Shadow Hunter and a higher Citadel rating. There's no Huaqiang, and although you do have Mark of Yama if you want to go Rockets, if you want to do that, you might as well just pick a cheaper hull that can also station keep with Contra Rotation. Being able to sit in place and angle your fire is a pretty useful trait for something with long-range weapons, and the Yamaguchi can't do that. I also really like the Shanghai frigates. These did see an update to go from 25 to 27 points, but they still seem quite good. You can put down long-range firepower while keeping them away from enemy ships and kind of keeping their numbers up for the late game. They can also attack earlier than most frigates, which may take fire on the way into their effective range. So let's talk a moment about the interphase generator. What makes this so powerful? The reason is just that it blocks a lot more potential hits compared to something like the shroud generator or the shield. If you total up the number of hits across all six phases of the die, an obscured ship is blocking one of those, so you're getting one-sixth fewer hits. The interphase generator is blocking half of the hits. You're losing one off each heavy hit, you're losing one off each exploding hit, and then, because it makes you mass 1, you're also taking away the ability to explode if the enemy attack is a gunnery attack. So in most cases, that's 3 out of the potential 6 hits gone. At that level of power, I would recommend putting them on both of the flagships in the rear positions. Even if it gets eroded down to only blocking 2 of the 6 hits instead of 3, that's still very powerful and I think worth having. So as I was recording this episode and getting everything ready to publish, War Cradle pulled another surprise and came out with the Latin Alliance Mini Orbat. I don't want to wait several weeks to talk about it, so we're going to go ahead and throw it in here at the end of the episode. The first thing that stands out to me about the Alliance 
is they seem to have a strong focus on defense against aerial and submerged attacks. Their first special rule, Coordinated Support. This model may add plus 3 to its aerial and submerged defenses if it's within 10 inches of one or more friendly units with the flagship trait. So, sort of like the crown, you've got a bubble around your flagships, and if your other ships stick inside that bubble, they get excellent protection against uh, both aerial attacks like rockets and submerged attacks such as torpedoes. You can take an assessment at the beginning of the game, look at how your opponent is armed, and decide whether or not it's important to stick together. Uh, if you're facing, you know, like a rocket-heavy Chinese force, or if it's not a big deal and you can go ahead and separate as normal. They also have defensive pilots. This states that friendly SRS tokens give you plus two aerial defense and plus two dice defending in a boarding assault instead of the normal plus one. Finally, a lot of their ships have the reinforced waterline rule. This says that attacks with the submerged quality gain only one hit from a heavy hit rather than two. So this is another nice feature that uh, you'll get less damage from torpedoes and other submerged models, uh, for example, whales. The Alliance also has the Levant Generator. So this is a superior form of the Repulsion Generator. It lets you fly over terrain and things like that, but if you get a critical and you roll a generator shutdown, you automatically get to re-roll that. So there's a much lower chance that your ship is going to fall and perhaps land on an island or something. None of the ships in their Orbat are using this yet. What Stewart has said is that this is going to be for the dedicated flying models that the French were known for in the old game. So you'll see this as an internal generator on those ships, and we'll know more about that uh, when the Alliance Orbat gets beefed up closer to their release. Now, if you look at their weapons, they have a couple of fairly unique options here. First, they have the Heat Lance. This is a weapon that's optimized for closer range. It gets eight dice at point blank, seven at closing, five at long, and it links pretty efficiently when you're close as well. It has gunnery, hazardous, and devastating. So hazardous gives disorder. Devastating means that exploding dice do three hits instead of two. I have not gotten to play any test games yet using the Heat Lance. In the next episode, I will have had time to do that, and I'll provide some comments on how it went and how I feel the Heat Lance stacks up to the more standard heavy gun battery and heavy rocket battery. The other weapon that's kind of unique to the Alliance at this point is that they use torpedo turrets. So everybody else has torpedoes that fire only in a 90-degree arc. Their turrets fire in a 270-degree arc, so you're going to see a lot more use of torpedoes from the Alliance players. It's just a lot easier to line them up, get those shots to where you want them to be. Interestingly, the Alliance Mini Orbat does not include a battleship class. It has the Oriflamme Battle Cruiser. So this is the same ship that's shown in the wallpaper image, and a battle cruiser is just a light battleship, more or less. It's 200 points, so pretty cheap. It has a lot of different weapons on it. You've got a couple of heavies, you've got a couple of regular batteries, a heavy broadside, and two torpedo turrets, which is really nice. I really like seeing two of these because a single torpedo is usually not enough to do damage. Being able to link them together makes it much, much better. Now, if you happen to see the very first version of the Alliance Orbat, they made a change on the Chevalier Cruiser to make it better match the wallpaper image. 
So the image showed a ship with two forward gun batteries, and the first version of the PDF accidentally had a fore and aft gun battery. So that's been changed so that now it's, it's dual forward batteries, also dual torpedo turrets, and it's got a, just a regular broadside. So pretty strong forward firepower. It does cost 105 points, which is a bit high, so we're going to have to see if it's able to justify its cost with this amount of firepower. By next episode, I'll have had a chance to play some games with it and give you some better feedback of how it went. Finally, we have the Ecuyer frigate. It's 21 points a ship, so that's definitely on the cheaper end. It has good defense values for a frigate. You have the standard gun battery, light broadsides, all the extra defensive rules, which are going to help keep it alive. Plus, uh, like the Crown Frigate, it has Giant Slayer. So they do an extra die and can reroll blanks if you're attacking a target of mass three or more. As with the other mini Orbats, there's also a fleet carrier coming in at 250 points, the Coron. It looks pretty standard for most of the fleet carriers. Uh, it's an 8 SRS capacity. You've got the two torpedo turrets, so you can link those, and that's pretty nice. Uh, the small broadside, and you have a single heavy rocket battery. Since both torpedoes and rockets generally have the same dice out to any range, this means you're probably going to try to keep your carrier further away. There's no real reason to get it stuck in other than the range of the planes themselves. That's it for today. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to the podcast so far. And for bearing with me while I learn to use the audio software. Starting next episode, I hope to have significant improvements in both sound quality and editing. So please stay tuned for episode three, when we'll be discussing scenarios, rockets, the most commonly missed rules, alien races in the dystopian age, and more. If you have a topic you'd like me to talk about, please feel free to ping me on Facebook, either by private message or in the Sturgenium Lounge Facebook group. Thank you, and I hope to see you again for the next episode of Dystopian Academy.